Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hi, and thanks for downloading episode number nine of The Next Track. Today, we're very pleased to welcome a special guest. His name is Will Hermes. He's a music historian, journalist, author, broadcaster. Will, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks. Good morning or uh, good afternoon, as it would be over there. I invited Will on the show because Will and I have, well, we knew each other way back in that that gloomy decade of the 1970s in New York. Um, We lived pretty much near each other and we were part of a group of friends that hung out and did things and went to concerts and listened to music and I always thought it was great when I started seeing Will's name in things like the New York Times and, and other places on the web so Will what do you do now? You started out being someone who really liked music, and now this is your day job, isn't it? Yeah, I thought thought I was slacking off for all those years, just hanging out, listening to <laughs> records, and it turned out to be some sort of weird career preparation. But uh, but I kind of backed into writing. It was just something that I always liked and um, started doing work for newspapers and magazines just kind of on the side. And uh, eventually it just took over. Um, now I'm a, I, I guess I'm a senior critic and contributing editor at Rolling Stone. And that's one of my main things. I'm a regular contributor to National Public Radio. Um, All Things Considered uh, is the program that I'm most closely tied to. And then I, um, and then I write books as of the last six years or so i finished a book called love goes to buildings on fire and uh and i'm working on a new book uh about lou reed biography so love goes to buildings on fire is a book about music in new york in the 1970s which was which was our formative years they they certainly were and you were we were both on the ground i like how you said well we grew up together and we did things and yeah. we saw Well, I don't want to say too much of the things we did back then. But... Right, ellipsis. Yeah, that's yeah. Part. <laughs> but yeah, so back in the day, um, you lived in Fresh Meadows. I lived in Jamaica Estates, and and a bunch of us hung out in Cunningham Park. Which, just an aside, did you know that John Cage had a project to do something in Cunningham Park shortly before he died? I had no idea. He was going to do something in like half a dozen parks, and Cunningham Park was one of them. And I thought that would have been great. Oh my gosh! I I realized in my research for the last book that uh, Philip Glass actually did a performance at Cunningham Park. Wow! Um, early on, I think it was probably you know a portion of music in twelve parts, but uh, but I I think I was <laughs> I was probably nine at the time, <laughs> not quite plugged into what Philip Glass was doing, but uh, but yeah, we we went down to the music box, right? But uh, got used records. That was one way that I searched for music back then, when you could pick up a vinyl record for a dollar or two, and uh, you know. So th- this brings us perfect segue to our main topic. I wanted to talk about music discovery, and. You just said it, the music box on Union Turnpike. This is one of the places where we would get music. And so I was thinking about this. We got music from the music box. We heard about new music on WNEW, Allison Steele and Scott Muni and all that. Um, And we went to concerts. We went to lots of concerts. We'd go to the big concerts where we'd buy tickets. And then I remember in the summer, a, a lot of us would go to the, I don't remember what they called that festival at the Woolman Skating Rink. 
Oh, but it was the uh, the Sh back then. It was the Schaefer, the music. Schaefer Music Festival, and you could sit up on a hill that was kind of at like a forty-five degree angle to the stage, and you could hear all the music. And there was always a couple hundred people there. And I remember hanging out there for I don't a dozen concerts one summer. Um, a bunch of us would go down there all the time for different bands that we didn't want to pay for. Oh yeah, that's so funny because I was standing on that particular rock that you're talking yep. about with my daughter probably a year ago and i for some reason i didn't realize that that was that was the the viewpoint yeah catching the shows when you didn't have a ticket yeah yep. and so the music box was was this record store on union turnpike and it was run by a guy named ken i don't remember his last name and he wasn't like he didn't have a wide variety of music but back then there wasn't that much music to choose from anyway Right. And I think I seem to remember, I don't know if he was the owner, but maybe he was just an employee there, this guy Keith. And he was the yeah. singer in this group, the Brats. And the Brats were kind of like a sort of glam proto-punk band that played. They played CBGBs. In fact, I think they were on one of those. They might have even have been on either the CBGBs or the Max's album that came out in the mid-70s. They never really, I don't even think they finished a record. But I remember that he was a guy who turned me on to music when I went there. So I have a, a, a very good memory of one afternoon I was in your house. Um, you turned me on to a piece of music that changed my life. Really? We were sitting there under the influence of some thing and you had this awesome record you were the only person i knew that had the awesome record collection with all sorts of weird things and you put on you opened up this black box with a yellow banner on top and you put on this record that lasted a little over 20 minutes and at the end i was like wow and it was steve reich's six pianos wow that's right yeah and, and i totally remember at the end of it it's like this was a musical revelation and so back in the day, you could do that. You could go to someone's house and they'd have a record you'd never heard. You'd never think of looking at in a record store. You'd never hear on the radio. And you could discover music like that. But everything's changed now. Now that all music is available for three clicks and 10 bucks a month, it's all changed. And so how do people discover music today? Obviously, for you as a music critic, it's different from average people. But how do you see people discovering music now? Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing. Um, I think it's partly a function of age and that people feel out of it. But I think it's also a function of we ha now have everything at our fingertips. The entire history of recorded music, everything is there. But how do you choose? Who are the gatekeepers that you trust? Yeah. Um, some people will tell me they go to the NPR music website. Um, which has a, a number of pretty good curators in different genres. Um, and and you good. get a lot of first listens of new albums there. They do. So you can go on any given week and see that they post maybe five new albums that will be coming out next week. Um, although what coming out means at yeah. this point is yeah. kind of academic. Um, and you can, you can check them out. And it's usually top shelf stuff, whatever the genre is. Yeah. So that's, that's one way of finding stuff. Um, I mean, for me, using these streaming services, I have my own aesthetic kind of uh, prejudice, prejudices, but I will, you know, very often just go through Tidal new releases or Spotify new releases just to see, you know, what the current state of pop music is this 
<laughs> particular week um, to see who dropped what. And uh, and that's, you know, that's a good way to survey the, you know, the most hyped stuff. Um, and then for, you know, more esoteric stuff, it, it depends. I still go the old route of reading magazines. I mean, uncut magazine. Like, I adore uncut magazine. Those guys and women have great sensibility really in my wheelhouse very frequently super smart so you know i read the wire which you know i think is yeah. outstanding they go a little bit you know deeper into obscure stuff than i sometimes go but always learn stuff from them and uh and uh, and, and the wire has downloadable i think it's monthly um cds you can download so you know tracks you can sample Right, yeah, and un uncut. If you get the paper magazine, they also have that old, you know, the the old style CD sampler with every issue. I I wonder these days what percentage of people care about music enough to want to discover new music because you know you you look back. What was it fifteen years ago? Chris Anderson wrote this book, The Long Tail, this sort of you know. Um, utopio libertarian ideal that everyone's going to buy everything because it's available and it turned out to be totally false and right now you've got the the three biggest pop stars who are getting 90 percent of the streams um I, I kind of get the feeling now of course you know we're too old to know what younger people were doing really but back in the day when we were teenagers it seemed like more people cared about music and cared about new music at least a greater percentage of people. However, fewer people actually listened to a lot of music because most people only had radio. Right. Yeah, well, I think people used to get it from radio and, you know, now you can get it from radio. I mean, I have re young, younger relatives who they're just into pop music and they get it from the radio and that's fine. Radio uh, is still number one for discovery, although I think I saw recently that YouTube is running neck and neck, but radio is still just as vital today as it was 30, 40, 50 years ago, don't you think? Right, I would guess. I mean, if you go out to you go out to restaurants and malls and, you know, if it's not radio, it's, you know, some sort of radio-like streaming service that's uh that's been programmed and uh you know, the people who want more obscure stuff will search it out. I have two nephews who are in their late teens and 20s and uh they certainly read read Pitchfork. They read, you know, a number of, of journals that kind of stay on top of indie rock and hip hop and electronic stuff. And uh, yeah, I go to I go to Pitchfork a lot too. I learn a, learn a lot of stuff about things that you know might have gone under my radar because working for Rolling Stone and NPR, I I tend to go towards certain things that are in their aesthetic wheelhouse, whatever that is. Um, per se. I'm always looking for quote unquote good stuff. But, uh, you know, there are, <laughs> that's a relative term. Uh, I asked my son earlier today, he's 25 years old, he's into electronic music. Um, so he, he tells me, he uses Apple Music, blogs, random music sites. He uses a website called Rate Your Music. Do you know that? RateYourMusic.com? I haven't used it much. It, it's a thing where you enter the, the names of bands and you find similar bands. Just last week, he messaged me because I've obviously told him about a lot of the music I listened to in the 70s, and I've shared a lot of music that I have with him. And he, last week, he says to me, how come you never told me about Gang of Four? 
<laughs> what kind of parent are you? And so he found it on Rate My Music, maybe because he put in The Cure and, and Joy Division or something, both bands that he likes. But he also mentioned Pitchfork. He follows artists that he likes on Twitter, and he follows their recommendations. So a certain artist is going to say, hey, check out this new album, and he'll look at it. One thing that he does, are you familiar with the label called Other People? Nicholas Jar, Dark Side, Dave Harrington. Oh, sure, sure. Nicholas Jar, Love. And yeah. So, so my son subscribes to them. They, they release what they call issues. And for 50 bucks a year, he gets everything they release. And he really likes their stuff. So he dropped down the 50 bucks and he discovers a whole bunch of bands. Of course, they're all in the same stable, right? It's like back in the early 80s, I was buying like every factory record I could find. So it's a similar kind of thing. Right. Or like, you know, somebody like Jar has got a sensibility that you could compare to, uh, you know, like Brian Eno's obscure label. Like exactly. I would probably like anything that was yeah. on a label curated by Jar, just guessing. You know? Yeah. And so my son was just so blown away when there was an interview with Dave Harrington like six months ago, and he was saying how much he loved The Grateful Dead. Because I have tried to get my son to listen to The Grateful Dead since he was born, and I have forcibly subjected him to Grateful Dead music many times, but only after reading Dave Harrington, who had made a Spotify playlist of his favorite songs, is now all of a sudden he's like, oh, I want some more Dead music. Wow. Did he check out this five-hour Dead tribute that I, the uh, National put together? I th uh, no, he, no, he didn't do that. But So Dave Harrington recently did something in New York, like a Dead cover concert or something. And my son's been fishing around to see if he can get a recording of it. Wow. Well, tell him to, I, I think you can probably get this on the streaming service. Days of the Dead, yeah. Day of the Dead. It's yeah. like, it, it is. It, it's, it's interesting. It's pretty great. It's, you know, it's not, 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 uh, it's a little uneven. Yeah. But there's tremendously good stuff. And it's really, it's a reverential um uh, treatment of this music and really in the spirit rather than people trying to, you know, really, um, you know, kind of take it apart ironically. Yeah. Um, and it's not just covers, it's reimaginings. Yes. Um, and that's what makes it interesting. I mean, as you say, it's uneven and I'd say half of it is really good and half of it is like, eh, move on. Um, but it, it surprised me. Um, it reminded me there was a, I think for Amnesty International, there was a thing a few years ago with three CDs of Dylan covers, and most of them weren't very good at all. Um, so I was expecting it to be like that, but it was a lot better than I thought. Yeah, I mean, if you can do better than, you know, 40 or 50 percent on these things in terms of stuff yep. that's good and listenable, you're doing pretty good. And I thought for a five-hour set, this was, uh, it was, it was pretty impressive. The Bonnie Prince Billy tracks I, I especially liked. It was good stuff. Um, but you know, when, when I write for Rolling Stone and for NPR, I mean, I, I try not to be the old guy writing about old music just because, I mean, even though I've, I mean, I'm writing a book about Lou Reed, but I, I, for me to just become a nostalgia merchant as a, as a writer and as a music fan, not interested. Um, but I do like to try to connect old and new. And for the venues I write for and broadcast for, that that that's one way I, I, I try to facilitate people, you know, finding out stuff. Uh, you mentioned old and new. And one of the things I've noticed is in the case of my own progeny, my daughter is 21 and I think she may be typical in that she doesn't detect old and new. 
Uh, it's just like a whole forest of music to explore. Right. So to her, the Ramones and Blink-182, they're of the same stuff. But to me, they're very different bands. Right. So how did music become this continuum as opposed to a, a series of different eras? The Internet. Yeah. When suddenly everything was available simultaneously. If you're a 12-year-old discovering music on the Internet... It's, you know, the Ramones and Blink-182 and fill in, you know, last week's teen punk sensation um, yep. are all coming at you with the same, you know, the same volume that on the same level. Everybody, even the pictures look like everybody's the same age because of when they were taken. So when, when we were teenagers, we were sort of living, I would say, the third generation of rock. So, you know, you had the first generation, Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry, and then the second generation was all the San Francisco stuff. And then we were in the mid-late 70s when we were teenagers. But we were aware of those generations, and there were radio stations that were playing Golden Oldies back then. So, Well, you know, the thing about Golden Oldies back then is that when we were listening in the 70s, Golden Oldies were like 10 years, 15 years old, stuff from the late 50s, early 60s. But music played from 10 or 15 years ago today is not a golden oldie it's not it's it's nirvana right and conversely music that we listened to in the 70s we still listen to now all the time music from 40 years ago if however in the 70s we had listened to music from the 30s our peers would have thought we were crazy what are you doing listening to big band music Right. Well, now that rock and roll is 50 to 60 years old, there is this huge history that we weren't dealing with. We could we could sort of wrap our heads around all the music that had come um, before our generation that we wanted, a, you know, the dividing line music post Beatles. Yeah, um, that's harder for uh, for a young person to do now. It's harder for yeah, me we, to do now. We, we could we could be aware of everything that came before. Remember those rock family tree things? Um, I would pour over those and say, oh, wait, what was this band that this guy was in before he was in that band and all that? And and that was one way to find music. But the Rock Family Trees only went back 15 years at the most, 20 years, maybe. Right. Now you need like an electron microscope yeah. and you have to, like, <laughs> to etch that thing on a chip or something. I don't know. But one thing that's missing now. So the music box um if you you remember the music box it was also a second store it was on hillside avenue at 179th street i don't remember what the name of it was it was a tiny tiny store it was run by a guy named Stu. and for a couple of years i used to hang out there this is when i was working in manhattan and still living in queens and i'd come home from work and hang out and it was like high fidelity right it was like you know everyone would come in with their records and we'd all play them and make tapes and we didn't do the list thing but it was the same kind of discovery and this was the period when i was discovering joy division and the cure right so 79 80 um we don't have that anymore we don't have that ability other unless it's facebook or whatever there isn't that ability to commune with like-minded people. Granted, it was only one-tenth of one percent of people who did that, um, and they were considered strange, but we don't have that ability anymore because we don't have record stores. Right. The social, the physical social space of the record yeah. store is, uh, doesn't really exist anymore other than, you know, rock clubs, maybe. 
But uh, it's funny because you, you you mentioned Facebook and somehow I we haven't touched on social media because social media for me I see that certainly as a as a huge way that I share music with other people and very often um, read about music that I wouldn't come across. Um, in all sorts of publications because people have forwarded me articles and sometimes actual links. Um, I know DJ mixes, you know, following electronic music is tricky, but, you know, people will post DJ mixes and share them on Facebook. And that's all, that's how I get turned on to a lot of new stuff in that genre, especially. Yeah. My son does that. He'll hear something in a DJ mix and go look it up, but he's like, we were he's curious enough to want to go further right. so that makes me also think of there's a question of is your music interest deep or is it broad and you know i remember sitting down the first time i heard brain salad surgery and i probably played it 20 times in a row i don't think anyone does that anymore i think people listen to maybe a song a half a dozen times but then they move on because it's playlist this and you know a link to that have we lost something in the lack of depth of really getting into music? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. I mean, in terms of the bond that people have with music, I think you really have to be a particular type of person now to put out the energy to have that kind of deep music experience, that deep listening experience. I think it was just a matter of course, because that's how you listen to a record. If there was a new, you know, Led Zeppelin record and you wanted to hear something other than the one song being played on the radio, you kind of had to like pull the vinyl out of the sleeve, put it on the turntable, put the needle down in the groove and then sit in front of the speakers and listen to it or move around your house. But it wasn't something that was just, you know, everywhere in your earbuds and every record that it was ever made. You could listen to at any point. Um, but also we only had, except for you, we only had maybe 50 or 100 records. Um, so we didn't have the same options. Do you, do you think we've lost something now, the fact that we do have too much music at our fingertips? You gain some, you lose some. You know, I think the beauty of it is that you can discover anything, like any tangent that you stumble on. You can dive really deep into it. It's all there for you. And I think that is just beautiful and amazing if you care to. Yeah. But um, I don't yeah. think there's a big percentage of people who really care to. Again, you look at the streaming numbers and, you know, it's the top 10 songs that get 90 percent of the streams. Right. But wasn't it always thus? You know, I mean, people were buying Carpenters and uh, and Fleetwood Mac records. They weren't necessarily listening to Gong and Steve Reich, you know. <laughs> so we went deep into the things that we were interested in. But, you know, I think for a lot of people, music is wallpaper. It's, you know, it's light entertainment. It's uh, ambient um, amusement. And it doesn't really, you know, pay that close attention unless it is this sort of, you know, corporate powered, you know, event, quote unquote. And that's not even to disparage corporate powered events because, you know, you could call Beyonce's, you know, lemonade a corporate powered event. But I think that's a, a remarkable work of art. And love or hate Kanye West, it's like there is, you know, there's something, you know, remarkable about the the 
level of attention these artists can command and and earn, have earned. Yeah. Um, but it's certainly, you know, to me, it's just a small fraction of what is out there and the the amount of attention that goes to these mega artists at the expense of all the good stuff that's out there is, you know, way out of out of out of, out of balance. But you know, again, I think that that was kind of always a factor since rock since music became big business. Do you think that streaming has just made it easier for bigger acts to get bigger while making it more difficult for smaller acts, or or is it more democratic? Well, I don't know. Technologically, it's equally um, democratic. I mean, I can, you know, I can find Steve Reich and, um, you know, Prince and Kanye West equally um, easily. But that's, but that's because you know the names to look for. Right. I mean, if you look at the most popular songs on Apple Music or Spotify or whatever, you're not going to find anything like that. It's all going to be the, the most, you know, pop songs written by Swedish guys. Right, right, um, and that's the stuff that has the you know that has the highlight buttons you yeah. know on the page when you call it up, um, and you know and the big artists are on the cover of Rolling Stone. <laughs> certain people get written about, and certain people don't. Yeah, I, I think we we were fortunate. We lived in a bubble in New York City in the nineteen seventies, because not only do we have good radio with WNEW. Um, what was that Fordham University radio station that had good DJs even? WFUV. Um, yeah, exists. still exists. Still doing very good work. But we had all those great concerts in the 70s. And, you know, if you grew up in Podunk, Ohio, you didn't have many options to see interesting bands. You know, we had everything from Madison Square Garden down to CBGB's and Hurrah's and, you know, all these places. We were very lucky and we had record stores nearby where you could go down and you could, you know, pick up you know, rock scene magazine or cream, which, uh, you know, people who lived in middle America, you know, you might have to get in the car and drive four hours to find a record store that would have these magazines, the zines that came out in, you know, the the early days of indie rock. Um, or, or we could go down to Bleecker Street and we could buy Melody Maker and New Music Express. Right, right. But now you can, uh, you know, you can theoretically get all this stuff online if you, if you know it's out there. So that's that's a good thing. But it's you know you need you need people and and sources of information to direct you. Um, it's out there f for people who want it, but not everybody wants it. So is there a lot of good music these days? Oh gosh, I think so. I mean, I can't listen to all the good music that's out there. I'm still very optimistic, which is, you know, probably good <laughs> considering what I do for a living. But yep, and yep. maybe it's a function of it. But uh, but, I, you know, ab absolutely. It, and and it, it amazes me how much good music there is because it is so hard to make a living making music nowadays that you that rec selling records, except for a very small fraction of musicians, is you know is a is an option in terms of you know making a making a living wage. Uh, I'm looking at the clock, and we've got to wrap it up. Yeah, thanks, Will. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us. We're going to look forward to your Lou Reed book, which is going to be out one of these years. It will be out one of these years, and in the meantime, Love Goes to Buildings on Fire is still. Uh, Still on the shelves, hopefully. Um, this has been great fun. It's great to uh, great to geek out with you guys.
This is the part of the show where we uh, like to let you know what our next tracks are. Kirk, what do you plan on listening to today? Well, following up on something I mentioned in the conversation with Will, my next track is Steve Reich's Music for 18 Musicians. This was the record that broke Steve Reich out of a bit of obscurity. It was his first record on ECM, which is the jazz label, which back then it was jazz, and they had just launched their new series, and, and it was trying to cover new music that wasn't jazz, so avant-garde classical. It's a 56-minute piece for 18 musicians. It's Steve Reich's signature repetition, percussion bass. It's got marimbas and xylophones and maracas, and it's got pianos, and it's got some clarinets and voice, and it goes through 18 different parts, and it's just a fascinating recording. And, and now I'm picking the ECM version from 1978 because I believe there are five or six different versions of this piece now. And while some of the newer ones are better recorded, this one, to me, just sounds right. Now, maybe the one that I sort of imprinted on because it was the first one I had back in the day, but I think it's the best one. So Music for 18 Musicians by Steve Reich on ECM, still available in all the usual ways, um, CD, download, and streaming. What's your next track? Uh, I have also taken some inspiration from our discussion about New York, specifically 1978 New York, and uh, I'm choosing Johnny Thunders' So Alone. This is the first solo album by Johnny Thunders, who was one of the original members of the New York Dolls. When he left the Dolls, he uh, started in another band called The Heartbreakers, not to be confused with the Tom Petty outfit. I think it was All Music Guide that said they were a drug-addled mediocrity. Not so good. But in 1978, David Johansson had put out his first solo album, and I think that kind of inspired Johnny Thunders to do a good job. He does a great job, actually, on this record. It's produced by Steve Lillywhite. It's got guest appearances from Paul Cook and Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols. Steve Marriott is on it. Phil Lynott, a lot of other uh, New York musicians who were around at the time. It's a really great record. Johnny Thunders, So Alone. It's my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.